With the holidays coming up, it causes us to think back to family, doesn't it? We often go back to memories of gatherings from when we were younger. While we tend to focus on the good memories, it is likely that these get-togethers exposed some of the issues in our families, right? Because you put a bunch of people into a confined space, you mix in variables such as lost sleep or the inevitable discussions on politics and religion, and you have an environment where there's probably going to be some fireworks. Well, while I've been stuck at home for the last week, I have been re-watching one of my favorite sitcoms, The Middle. Now, if you're not familiar with this show, it is a lower middle class family in the middle of the United States, and each episode, we're invited into the lives of a regular family of five trying to make ends meet. Well, like many shows, they often have holiday episodes. And as I was watching through this series this past week, I came upon a Thanksgiving episode. And as is usually the case in those kinds of shows, their Thanksgiving weekend together was a complete disaster. Serious arguments and accusations. One in-law staying in the room working all weekend to avoid family because... Well, this person was a chiropractor. What work do you do away from the office? Clearly, they just didn't want to be around family. Well, the height of the conflict comes when the main character and her sister bring up issues from their childhood and they end up wrestling and fighting over the issues that have surfaced over the weekend. And it all ends with the main character holding her sister down by sandwiching her in the air mattress that her and her husband have been forced to sleep on during the weekend. Well, of course, things get resolved. The two sisters have a good cry in the middle of the night when they meet going to raid the fridge for leftover stuffing. And the whole episode has been a comedic disaster. But things are resolved in the end and within 22 minutes, of course. Well, the final scene is the family pulling away in their beat-up station wagon. And the main character says to her husband, I told you it would be the perfect Thanksgiving weekend. Well, I stopped watching after that episode to do some stuff around the house. And so that final line and the circumstances of the episode were sort of stewing around in my head. And because of the difficulty of the passage that, that we read here, the, the passage from Genesis that we're working through, I've been stewing with that too. And, and something clicked where the two sort of came together for me. Because we often have the same experience with the Bible. We tend to remember the positive and forget some of the negative things that we see. We tend to gloss over some of the difficult passages and focus on the good. But the Bible doesn't do that itself, does it? It's brutally honest about sin and about the pain that sin brings into the world. And it's also honest about the transgressions of some of its greatest heroes. As we journey through Genesis, we see some amazing things and plenty to emulate. But this is truly a book of the Bible where we see the people of God, warts and all. And one example of this that we've seen already is the story of the drunkenness of Noah. We learned that even though Noah was righteous in his day, he was not the righteous one. 
He was fallen and sinful. And so we are shown that while Noah was righteous and good, he was not the Messiah. He was not the one who was going to crush the head of the serpent. But of all the difficult passages in the book of Genesis and maybe in the entire Bible, this one might be one of the toughest. But still, it is my hope that we will come away not only learning something about God, but also finding a way that we can apply this passage to our lives. So to do this, to help us to navigate this passage, we're going to break it up into three parts again like we normally do. First thing that we're going to see is that Lot leaves the haven that he has been provided in Zoar. Now this is something I had actually never really noticed in this passage until I went through it this week to prepare. We don't know for sure why he did this, but it leads to a rather precarious situation for the continuation of his family. Because the men who were going to marry his daughters were wiped out when Sodom was destroyed. Secondly, we will see the shameful thing that the daughters of Lot plot and carry out. Now, if you weren't aware of this story coming up in Genesis, you were likely taken aback when the passage was read this morning. As I mentioned, we have seen interesting situations in Scripture before, but this one is interesting. There's deception, there's drunkenness and incest in this passage. And it seems that this is the consequence of Lot moving away from God, of, of not being concerned with the things of God, but being concerned with the things of the world. And lastly, we will see that this event has long-term consequences. We've seen many genealogies in the book of Genesis, but the offspring of Lot's daughter, the short genealogy that we see here, is probably the shortest one that we'll see in the entire book. But we see that it is long-term lasting consequences. The offspring of Lot's daughters end up being enemies of the people of God. So with those three points laid out, let's get into this as we get to verses 30 and 31. Now we're continuing here the story of Lot after the desolation of Sodom. And this is the last time that we're going to see Lot. After we get the details of this story, we're not going to see Lot again. And it's kind of sad, really. After the previous stories that we've seen about Lot, we'd like to think that maybe he learned his lesson and got straightened out. But this is what we're left with. We would like to believe that maybe he saw the judgment of God in Sodom and learned an important lesson about staying near the presence of God and avoiding bad situations, but that just isn't the case. Lot just can't seem to settle in anywhere and then have positive results, can he? But if you'll remember, back last week, Lot was told when fleeing Sodom to head for the hills. But he didn't want to go there. He was afraid he would be caught up. And so he begged God to spare the small city of Zoar. And God mercifully granted that request. But now what do we see that Lot has done? He's moved to the hills. Now, when I think about this part of the story, apart from what's coming, I kind of see some humor in this, actually. I mean, normally... 
Once you move to the hills, find a cave, and start a prepper stash in anticipation of a coming apocalyptic event, right? Isn't that what you would normally do? But what does Lot actually do? Lot heads for the hills and holds up there in a cave after an apocalyptic event. He got the whole, things ba- whole thing backwards. It's kind of humorous. But we don't, we don't know what's going on here. We can only speculate. Did he leave Zoar because of a stigma of having been from Sodom and being the only family that survived? Is, is he depressed that his wife was caught up in the destruction and he's gone into seclusion? We don't know. We can't know. But notice again where Lot is not. He's not near Abraham. He's not near the presence of God. He seems to be unable to get things together to be a part of the community that surrounds Abraham. A place place that we have seen is close to the presence of God and a place where there is security. We don't know why he can't make peace with being near Abraham. But it is a persistent problem for Lot. And it leads to a much bigger problem. The unbelief of the the men that Lot's daughters were to marry caused them to be caught up in God's wrath. And so they have not only lost their future husbands, these daughters, but now they also live in a cave in the hills. Where are they going to find husbands? They didn't have dating apps. They couldn't go to the singles night at church. And they weren't going to have any gentlemen asking them out in the produce section of the supermarket. And so you can see where this running from civilization, and more specifically, Abraham's community, you see where this has landed them. Now, I'm not talking about this to condone in any way what they're going to do because it's sinful and terrible, but it's important that we see the issues here. There were plenty of men for them to marry with Abraham. There would have been security there. There would have been a future there. But the rejection of that community of people has landed these young ladies without hope. It has put them in a place of desperation. And as we all know, that's never a good thing. They've been isolated from people in general, but they've also been isolated from the people of God. And we see how extreme their concern has become. They're living in a very small and a very isolated world, aren't they? Notice what they say. There is not a man. They've they've become convinced that there are zero prospects for marriage and for childbearing for them. Well, now they, they have to know that this isn't true, right? I mean, they could see afterwards, they could see the edges of the destruction. They were in Zoar and had to have seen other people there that survived, But what has happened? Their isolation has created an attitude of of hopelessness and and of desperation. And so as we move on to our second point and move on to the next passage or portion of this passage we're looking at, we see the the shameful thing that this desperation has led to. Now last week, I actually drew out some of the similarities in the way the story of the flood was told and the way the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is told. And as I've already alluded to, we we had the story of Noah's drunkenness 
after the flood, and now we have another story of drunkenness being told after a judgment from God. Now, there was plenty of stuff. There was plenty of stuff that happened in the lives of Noah and happened in the lives of Lot after they were delivered from judgment. But we have these stories. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of Genesis gave us these stories as a part of Holy Scripture for a reason. Why was that? Well, one of the reasons is to help us to see that continued sin and continued depravity are going to happen. Even though it looks like all this stuff has been purged from the earth in the flood and in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, even though it looks like all that stuff should be gone, we get persistent reminders that even those who were rescued were sinners. We get a reminder that here in this story, the Messiah had not yet come. None of these people in Genesis are perfect. The world is still broken, and they still need a Savior. And as we look at this incident, we see deception. We see manipulation, and it ends up in incest. There is nothing about this situation that is redeemable. And on top of it all, it's repeated a second time. Both sisters do that. The desperation that these sisters feel to fix their problems leads to this shameful thing. And as I've said many times so far, we we don't know all the circumstances surrounding this, but clearly there were issues here that were not being addressed. We don't know if the daughters ever expressed their concern for their futures to their father. We don't know if they did, and Lot blew him off. He was so caught up in his own stuff that he ignored them. Regardless, the way that things are supposed to be handled didn't take place. And as a result, we see bad things happening. It's an extreme reminder to us that we need to be deliberate to address the issues before us. When we don't, things can happen that lead to all kinds of trouble. And as we move on to our third point, we see that the consequences of this incident have long-term and far-reaching effects. You've probably been thinking about what a bizarre story this is to have in Holy Scripture. And we've addressed some of the reasons it's there, but as we come to these last few verses, we see why this is being told. The daughters have children, and we learn their names. There's a legacy here. Now for us, we name our children because we like the way it sounds or because maybe it's a family name. The meaning of the names we choose for our children is is probably an afterthought. You grab one of those baby name books and you like the sound of a name and after that you look up the meaning and usually it's a positive thing. I, I never looked up a baby name in one of those books and saw a bad meaning for any of the names. It's not like someone chooses a name and they like it and then they get to it and it says smelly charlatan or, or something like that. Those baby name books that we look at almost always have positive meanings. And really it doesn't matter because we don't choose names for our children based upon the meaning in most cases. Well, that wasn't the case in the time that we're looking at in the Bible here. The names that they chose were deliberate in their meaning. 
So we have two sons here, born out of this event. And in order to really understand what is going on and why the story is told us, we have to look at the names given to these two boys. First, we have Moab, which means father. Then we have Ben-Ami, which means son of my people. Now, both of these names acknowledge how the children were conceived. In other words, there was no shame in Lot's daughters. They didn't try to hide it. In fact, they memorialized what they did in the names of their children. And as we look at this, we see that these men have families, and they come to be two different large people groups. And if we were to continue through the Old Testament and read on, we would come upon these names, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And you'll see and you'll find that they are enemies of the Israelites. And in Deuteronomy and Nehemiah, we see that they mistreat Israel, and so they are rejected by God. But there is some good news here. Interestingly enough, Ruth is a Moabite. Later on, in the story of redemption, we see Ruth, she's brought into the covenant people of God, even though she is a Moabite. She's brought in by faith and, and through marriage where she marries Boaz and they become the ancestors of King David and ultimately Jesus. And so we see here in this story that even though there is separation, that this, this terrible story causes enemies of God to be, to be born there is always the point where people can be brought back into the covenant people of God by faith. And we see this in the New Testament with Gentiles being brought to faith and in Revelation where we read that in heaven there are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. People are brought into the family of God even though separation happens in this world. People are brought in to the family of God by faith. Well, we've navigated this passage and we've seen a progression of desperation and it goes on to some clear sinfulness that leads to a people group who are enemies of the people of God. And as I just said, we see how this fits into the story of redemption. But how does it apply to our lives? What can we come away with that we can take into our lives in the coming week? I want us to be challenged with two specific applications and challenges. This morning. First, we need to consider our location. Have you assessed if where you are at in your life is where God would have you be? The problems we saw in the life of Lot all seem to have root in the fact that he was moving away from the presence of God. Remember back to when Lot and Abraham split. They just couldn't seem to get along and from there, we see multiple issues in Lot's life, all of them very serious. First, we, we saw that he was in danger from a military conquest, and Abraham had to come and rescue him. Then we saw that he needed to be saved from the wrath of God at Sodom. And now we have this. None of these things, not a one of them would have ever come up. None of them would have been an issue if he would have found a way to remain with the covenant people of God that were near Abraham. And I'm sure if we look back on our lives, 
We can remember times when we were with people that we shouldn't have been with or where we were led away from the presence of God. Now, there's a call in our lives to be holy, and it's difficult, and it's particularly hard if we keep ourselves from where we should be. Some important questions that we need to ask ourselves. Are we, are we hearing the word? Are we putting ourselves in a position to be encouraged in our faith? Who are we interacting with? Are these people building up our faith and encouraging us, or are they a drag on our spiritual lives? Now, obviously, I'm not saying you should isolate yourself from the world, but you're smart people. You know the relationships and the places that are an impediment to your pursuit of holiness. The key is to be honest with ourselves and to take action on those things. So may our prayer this week and every week be that we will fully understand the mercy that God has shown to us in Christ and may the Spirit give us a desire to pursue holiness. Secondly, it's important that we consider not only the short-term ramifications of our sin, but the long-term consequences as well. Sin is alluring. And part of its allure is that it will give us what we want in the moment. And this story shows us that sin has long-term and long-lasting effects. It can affect not only us, but those who come after us. But as we think about this, I don't want to dwell on this in, in the negative. We need to also consider how our pursuing holiness can also have long-term consequences. Had Lot stayed with the covenant people of God, none of this would have been an issue. But his moving away from the presence of God continually created these circumstances. You see, we can find it pretty easy to think of how pursuing holiness is, is good for us in the short term. But I think we need to dwell on how our pursuit of holiness today will help not only ourselves today, but it will affect things into the future for us, for our families, maybe even for generations to come. And we see a promise from God regarding this in the Old Testament. I'm specifically thinking of Deuteronomy 5, 9, and 10, where we read that God visits the iniquity of the fathers to the third and the fourth generations. But he shows steadfast love to thousands who love him and keep his commandments. And so as we step out this week. May we remember the grace that we've been shown in the Lord Jesus. We have been given the gift of faith, and so our sins have been forgiven. And so we need this truth to guide us and to motivate us to live a life of holiness so that we might be blessed not only today, but for generations to come by the covenant faithfulness of our almighty and covenant-keeping God. Amen.